my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. And this is What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. And if you are just finding us now and haven't listened to our first three episodes, please do. The first two was a two-part series with our idols at this point, Amy. That's what I call them. Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach. I call them our best friends. Best friends. Oh, right. Of course. They're our best friends. And I'm sure they would say the same. Abby Wambach, Glennon Doyle together. Their story of how they met gave us both goosebumps. And I think it will change the lives of many people listening. Uh, They also talked about pay equity and parenting and so much more. And then our third episode was media maven and just person extraordinaire Ariana Huffington. And that's a conversation you won't want to miss. I agree. I think they're all incredible, and I'm excited for today, too. But before we jump into it, you know, Sam and I created this podcast because we are obsessed with women's stories. Women's stories don't really ever get told. You hear all the time about what these, like, men who run companies eat for breakfast and their leadership skills. But what about the women who are doing the same? 
We're here to change that and to tell their stories. You can sign up to join our story in our newsletter at www.whatsherstorypodcast.com. And while there, you can also find the links to our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. So join us in all the places so we can keep you up to date on what we're doing next. So today, we are so proud to bring you Tina Chen, the CEO of Time's Up, former member of the Obama administration, lawyer extraordinaire, and so much more. Talking with Tina in this episode was basically like attending a masterclass on making change. She told us so many stories about how she made change as an attorney, as a member of the Obama administration, and what that was like working on the Council um, for Women and Girls at the White House, and now at at Time's Up. Uh, It was an amazing conversation, and it was really inspirational, but at times it was also kind of hard because we're talking about a really weighty topic that Time's Up is working on, which is discrimination in the workplace um, and beyond. I know we all have our own stories about that. Um, it's happened to every woman, and it's it's something that's really difficult. Sam, what did you think of it? And I mean, what's your story? I was an intern during college, and I was interning at the Washington Post for this guy who was known to really be like the people's advocate. He had a column. His name was Jack Anderson. He was super famous at the time. And uh, there were there was a male intern and there was me. And we were both um, tasked with finding stories for the main reporters to cover. And one night I was out, I was, you know, hanging out with all the other interns in Washington, DC. And a guy I knew from college told me a story that Newt Gingrich had been filtering money from the Republican PAC fund into his own PAC. Wow. This was scandalous. And I I kind of believed it. Like, I, I know the guy who told me, and I thought, you know, he certainly didn't tell me because he thought I was going to do something with the information. But I was like, I'm going to run with this. So I ran back to the office the next morning and shared the story with the reporters. And they started report pursuing it. And uh, a couple days later, one of them came into the office and the other intern, the male intern, his name was Andy. He had his bag packed. He had a suitcase with him. And I said, where are you going? And he said, oh. We're going to Atlanta because we are getting to the bottom of this new story about Newt Gingrich. And I was so stunned. I remember feeling like the wind had been knocked out of me. And I went to my boss and I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, well, Andy is a man and he can share a a room with a reporter who's going to be covering this. And since you're a woman, you can't share a room with him. So we had to send Andy. And at the end of that summer, Andy had three bylines in the Washington Post and I had zero. And all of his bylines were associated with that story. I mean, I think the weirdest part, Amy, is in looking back, I called my dad to talk to him about it. And he was like, that is discrimination. And I really didn't know it was discrimination until my dad labeled it for me. I hear that. I mean, I, you know, it's hard for us to sometimes name what we see, even though it might seem clear in retrospect or to somebody else when you tell them the story. I mean, and that it's not just when you're 22 or you're 23. It can also happen when you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. You know, when I was um, still practicing law and I was having my babies, I went to talk to my boss when I was coming back from parental leave and um, someone senior to him had just left. And so there was a position open and there was a possibility for me to get a promotion. And I asked him, I said, you know, will I be considered for a promotion? And he said, well, you know, we talked about it, but it's just not not the right time. You just had a baby. And I just kind of like nodded. And I'm like, yeah, you know, And at the time I was like, well, maybe he's right. But that's just discrimination, right? That's just not 
how this should work, right? It, if, if I had thought it wasn't the right time because I just had a baby, that would be my decision. But that shouldn't be how anybody else should look at me. But, you know, I didn't do anything about it. Now, later, I wrote in the Washington Post about it, speaking of the Washington Post, and it was really scary. I remember when I wrote the op-ed, I said to my husband, I, I fear that if I publish this, I'll never be able to practice law again. And at the time, I'd left to start my company, The Riveter, but my husband looked at me and he said, do you ever want to practice law again? And I said, I don't know. But the point is, is like, now I'm going to be someone who said something. And that is really scary. And I think, it, you know, it's still hard. Even today, I don't know how much it has changed. And, and I think even talking to Tina, it's so inspiring listening to her, but there's a little bit of a feeling of there's so much that still needs to be done. You asked her about change on Wall Street, change in, in law. I mean, we've seen so much about sports and media, right? We see a lot of like the high profile entertainment cases coming up. But what about people that are working in factories or in law firms or places that aren't as sexy and visible? I don't know if the change is being felt there. I don't, I don't know if it is, and, and it needs to be, right? And I think that's why this conversation with Tina is so important. Tina provides us all some actionable advice for reporting discrimination, so I hope you listen and learn like we did. Yeah, and I also felt like after listening to her, I hope that there's some people out there who feel confident to share their stories and just feel comfortable uh, moving forward with sharing because every time you share your story and speak up about injustice, you're helping a countless number of women. So too, Sam. And without further ado, here's Tina. You know, my parents were Chinese immigrants. Um, they came to the States in 1949, sort of fleeing the civil war in China that was what broke out after World War II. And, um, my dad actually deliberately, you know, having heard stories from friends and family about sort of the discrimination that Chinese people were facing in the coasts, sort of, you know, in New York and California, where there were high concentrations, concentrations of Chinese, um, sort of decided to settle us in a place where there were no Chinese. So this is in late 50s, early 60s. Um, there were really no Chinese in the east side of Cleveland. I think there were six families in the entire eastern suburbs of Cleveland, and we knew them all. Um, and it's very different now. You know, it's much more diverse now. But back then, there really were so few. It was such an oddity. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. So in addition to being the only Chinese person, I was also like one of like five not Jewish kids in my kindergarten class. <laughs> so. So that it has much marked my experience as much as being Chinese in the neighborhood. How? How did it mark your experience? Well, it was so interesting. I mean, like literally there were five of, us who, five of us who would show up to school on the high holidays until the school finally got smart and decided to close the school. It was public school. Close the school, you know, for high holidays. Um, you know, my my middle school years were marked by, you know, I went to temple for bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs more than I went to church <laughs> in those days. Probably my high school dating experience was less marked by the fact that I was Chinese dating, you know, these Jewish boys, but that I was a shiksa. <laughs> and that was actually the real issue. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's I, I think a lot about that upbringing in a Jewish neighborhood and, you know, some of that social justice and, you know, sort of the kinds of conversations that we would have in my high school uh, were, you know, a part of part of the shaping of my experience that might have been different had it been a different, I'd been in a different suburb of Cleveland, right? Um, I, I think I was probably really fortunate. I grew up in a suburb called Beechwood, which some people may know. It's just east of Shaker Heights, the very infamous Shaker Heights. You know, my mom was very active in the community. 
Um, that's kind of, I think, where I learned a lot of my activism was watching her. You know, she was real involved in the PTA and in the Girl Scouts as a Girl Scout leader. And, you know, as in American Field Service, you know, we, we sort of had students staying at our house, you know, that that kind of thing. And very accepted, again, as a Chinese immigrant by this Jewish community. Tina, did your mom work outside the home? She did not. Um, she was a chemist by training. You know, she actually um, came to the States um, and got her master's degree in chemistry. Um, worked for a while before I was born. I'm the oldest. But then, you know, it was 1956 <laughs> when I was born. So yeah. after I was born, you know, she stayed home. Um, and then my sister came along three years later. Uh, and then actually um, at a time when my, maybe my mom might have gone back to work, um, she got very ill with rheumatoid arthritis. So she had chronic rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. throughout most of her adult life, which really shaped sort of also my childhood. You know, when you have a chronically ill parent, um, it sort of also shapes, you know, how you know, your life as a kid, you take on, take on a lot more responsibilities as a kid really early on. Uh, and that's something we sort of, you know, managed my entire childhood. After you went away to college, you went to law school. I would love to know about your career as an attorney and as a litigator. You started as a lawyer at a time when women were made up something like 8% of attorneys. What was that like? Did you feel othered? Well, so I, th- I think this is relevant to your question because I didn't go straight to law school. Now, back then, so this is, so I graduated from college in 1978. And as you know, Amy, in, in 1978, not going straight to law school was actually somewhat of a rarity. Now it's actually much more commonplace. But, you know, the typical pathway was you go straight to law school right then after college. I didn't. I got married to somebody that I'd gone to college with. We both worked for state government in Illinois. It's sort of how I got to Illinois. So we were both living in Springfield, Illinois, and I worked for state government for three years before figuring out that, yes, actually, indeed, I did want to go to law school. And so I went to law school after then. Um, Interesting. It's an interesting time, those three years, because in addition to working for state government, they happened to be the three years when we were trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed through Illinois as the only northern industrial state that had not ratified the ERA. So, you know, that is also where I pegged the genesis of my you know, activity in um, and commitment to gender equity issues was really that, you know, here I'm 22 years old and like the center of the universe for American feminism comes to the very small town, Springfield, <laughs> Illinois, that I'm living in. Um, but I think being older, Amy, helped me, right? Because it really was an oddity. There were several of us, not a, a handful of us who had not gone straight through to law school. We actually became friends. That was our study group. It was all people who had not just come out of college. Um, and that being a little bit more mature, right, and a little bit better able, having been in the work world once already, I think steeled me for exactly what you're talking about, right? I went into, you know, Skadden Arps, which was not yet then one of the biggest law firms in the world, but subsequently became that, um, yeah, in their Chicago office, which had only just recently opened. So it also helped that I was one of about 30 lawyers at the time when I got there, even though the firm, which is based in New York, was, you know, several hundred lawyers. And the experience both, I think, of being older, of being other was actually something I was pretty used to. So I do think this whole growing up in Cleveland, growing up in a Jewish neighborhood, you know, being the other was, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but I had internalized a lot of the defense mechanisms, a lot of the, you know, I just didn't, the stuff just rolled off my back instead of 
really sort of festering with me. And I think that sort of came from that childhood of being, you know, the only Chinese kid, you know, um, in my school. And, uh, and so it, you know, it's, it is all the things that we always talk about, right. Being the only woman, you know, on a team, certainly the only person of color, um, trying to make your voice heard, you know, at different moments, you know, developing that confidence to sort of do that. I experienced all of it, but I think it did not, you know, it, it didn't paralyze me in the way that I think it can sometimes do because I actually had lived it a lot already by the time I got to be um, in a law firm. And I, you know, by the time I got to a law firm, I was sort of in my late twenties as opposed to my early twenties. And at what point did you become a single mother? My son Patrick was born when I was 31 and I became a single mom pretty much right away, you know, after then, you know, my, my ex-husband and I had been married for about 11 years at that point. Um, and you know, we separated not long after I went back to work, you know, for my maternity leave. And, um, and then I adopted Emma, um, sort of eight years, seven years later, they're eight years apart. Um, and she was about 10 months old when I got her. So I adopted her from China as a single mom. So yeah, so I was pretty much a single mom the entire time. So what was that like? Everyone kind of has this and Amy has lived it as well, but, you know, in corporate law, you know, billable hours are everything in terms of making partner. So how are you able to do that while also raising two kids by yourself? Well, you know, I had really good childcare, honestly, you know, and you you luck into childcare, um, Mm -hmm. good childcare. And I had means. So this is why I'm so passionate about working families issues is, um, I was a Skadden Arps lawyer, right? So I had a I had a lot of means, um, and so I had the resources to hire really good in-home childcare. You know, I had one person who worked for me for like 20 years, and a second person that I hired after I I got Emma, who worked for me also for like over 20 years. Actually moved with me to D.C. when we moved, and stayed for six years till Emma graduated from high school. So I just was really lucky to have two people who were so wonderful and they essentially became part of our family and um, and I could trust, right, that my kids were fine. You know, there were a couple of moments in there where I didn't, you know, um, one of my one, one of my sitters, you know, had her own her child and I gave her maternity leave. And so I had this unsettled period, right, where the mm-hmm. childcare wasn't fully locked in and it was there's a part of your brain that is fully is occupied during your day. If that's the case, right? If your kids aren't really, or if they're that's at home a great sick, point. right? If they're at home sick or, you know, there's something that's not fully ca- taken care of on the childcare front, there's a part of your brain and, and your emotional, you know, concentration that's occupied by that. Um, and I remember that feeling. It's so true. My kids are six, four, three, and one. And my mother, she was a teacher in Ohio uh, for my childhood, but after she retired, she came out to Seattle from Ohio to help me. And I really don't think I could have started my company if my mother hadn't been, been here to help us because I, I needed that, um, that safety and knowing that I could travel and that she would always be there. Well, and that's the thing, you know, just to bring things to present day, you know, one of the things at times up that we're talking about right now. And, you know, we just did sort of an activation with, you know, California assembly member, Buffy Wicks, you know, who yep. one of my former staffers um, around caregiving, you know, we are headed into in this country, a care- caregiving crisis on top of the healthcare crisis, the economic crisis, the racial justice crisis, 
The fourth one is now going to be caregiving as schools don't open, childcare centers go under, right? You know, that we have a childcare system that operates on very thin margins and they are going out of business. And, you know, lawyers and doctors are going to find, we're going to find childcare right. that we can hire in, but it is lower and middle income women who are dependent upon our school system, are dependent yep. upon a network of, you know, childcare centers or in-home childcare that's evaporating, um, that are finding that they, you know, they don't know what to do. They are in a literal crisis as we speak. They actually can't afford to not go to work, but then what do they do with their kids who are school age and learning virtually, but like, are they supposed to stay home alone all day? Can they safely stay home alone all day? You know, this is, is a, it's a real crisis, not just for those individual women, but, you know, for our overall economy. You know, we had made progress to the point where women were 50% of the labor force. And this particular crisis, and there's several, been several articles written about this now, has the potential to undo what has been now several generations of progress on the increase in women's labor force participation. And what that means is our economy as a whole will lose the talent, they're gonna lose the resources, um, and we are gonna suffer overall as a nation if we do not figure this out as a collective problem, not an individual problem for moms to figure out on themselves, but as a public policy imperative, as a business imperative for employers to figure out, not just leave their workers to figure out on their own. Well, it's also intertwined with Time's Up, right? Because if few women are in the workforce, then it it sort of paves the way and opens the door for a lot more discrimination uh, and harassment. So this is a, a good time for us to ask you about your work at Time's Up, and then we can go back to the White House because I know we want to hear about that. But but tell us about Time's Up and how you joined and what that experience has been like. Well, you know, my joining Times Up was a little bit was a little bit like being in Springfield at the right time. Um, I just happened, you know, it, this is October of 2017, you know, and, and the Harvey Weinstein articles have just come out. I had just joined and gone back to private practice after the White House and started a practice actually about three weeks before the first Harvey article on advising companies on workplace culture, because I had seen the need for that kind of advice through the work on the working families agenda in the Obama administration. And I happened to be in Los Angeles for something entirely different. Amy, actually, it was to play in United States Women is why I was out in Los Angeles. Something yeah. else Amy and I have worked on together and um, happened to be in the offices where these women from Hollywood had just spontaneously come together, having realized for the first time that they weren't the only ones, right? I mean, this, the culture of silence that had developed and the non-disclosure agreements and the threatening people with lawsuits if they spoke out, you know, environment that existed, not just in Hollywood, but in other workplaces, really meant that women who were these, you know, objects of sexual harassment thought they were the only ones and therefore continued to keep silent. It was a vicious circle. Well, the incredible reporting from the New Yorker or the New York Times blew that open and they all of a sudden realized they weren't alone. They had gathered together to support one another, but to their credit, they didn't want to just do that. They actually very quickly wanted to turn that pain into action, to do it on behalf of women, not just in their industry, but who didn't have the same platforms. And I really literally just happened to be there as those conversations were coming together. And we sort of realized very quickly that one of the things that was necessary was um, legal resources, both to help women um, who are being sued for defamation, because that's part of the predator's playbook, 
And also, as it turns out, low-wage women who didn't have access to lawyers because even though you get attorney's fees when you sue for sexual harassment, if your wages are so low, so the recovery is so low, turns out thousands of low-wage women have never had access to really vindicate their employment rights because they can't find lawyers who can afford to take their cases. So from that, you know, we, you know, I really helped put together the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, you know, which, you know, we famously raised the $24 million for right after the Golden Globes launch. A hundred percent of the 24 million went to the National Women's Law Center, which houses the Times Up Legal Defense Fund. And, um, uh, and since then, we've served, you know, nearly 5,000 individuals, you know, with both legal support and PR advice if they, if they choose to speak out. Um, but over the course of 2018, I continued, you know, all of us who were part of the leadership to stay involved to figure out what else do we need to do. It, wasn't, it was by no means for sure that we, were, we needed an advocacy organization, although it became clear that we did, right, on issues not just to support survivor justice, but also to not, you know, to start to create a world where we weren't just dealing with the aftermath of sexual harassment, right? We needed to create workplaces where it doesn't happen in the first place. And to do that, I think as Sam, as you were referencing, you need to create safe, fair, and dignified work, which means you need to have women represented up and down the wage scale. You need to address structural barriers that keep that from happening, like equal pay and paid leave and caregiving and fair pay and promotion. And so, that is now the advocacy agenda, you know, four times up, um, which is to work for, you know, as we, as we say, to create safe, fair and dignified work by um, uh, working with culture, company and laws. So that's that, that's not, not a small task. <laughs> that's I mean, it's an enormous task. It is the work of a lifetime, really. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. 
Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So walk us through how a woman reports today harassment, assault, or discrimination at work through Time's Up? Yeah, so, you know, if if someone is in need of help, if they've experienced something or they've reported to the company and they're not getting, you know, a satisfactory response or they need to file a claim, you know, and people should recognize that the statutes of limitation on these kinds of claims are, is very, very short. So if you think you have, you know, been the subject of some form of sexual harassment, you should reach out either to your HR department or to the Times of Legal Defense Fund or both very quickly. What um, is the typical statute of limitation? Six months, 180 wow. months. 100. <gasps> what? Yeah. How is that even possible? It's written into Title Seven. It's written into Title Seven is 180 days, you know, because, you know, Congress didn't really want to enact sex discrimination as part of Title Seven, <laughs> so, so that, that you know, that now we have lengthened it. There are many state jurisdictions, California, New York, you know, elsewhere that have lengthened for state claims, but for federal Title Seven claims, 180 days to get your claim into the EEOC. And that's for workplace discrimination, not for rape, because didn't you, 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 you last year- Changed Cuomo's, yes, like, did he? Right. Okay, so so talk about that too, because it's really yeah. this whole statute of limitations thing is incredible, and the work you've been doing around it is amazing. So you know what you're talking about, Sam, is remarkably New York had some of the shortest statutes of limitation for rape and sexual assault. So just you know 
what happens. It could be the workplace. It could be on the street. It could be in your home, you know, actual criminal. These are for criminal claims, not workplace claims. Um, and uh, New York had some of the shortest statutes of limitation. And several of our women activists in New York, actually led by Robbie Kaplan, you know, the amazing you know, lawyer and our, bo our board chair, we're sitting around and kind of like on a napkin. Robbie has kept the napkin, you know, mapping out. If we needed to change things in New York law, what should we be doing? And came up with a New York safety agenda. And it included things like lengthening out the statute of limitations for rape and sexual assault under New York law. Because what we also know about these claims is trauma is, and these are you know some of the most violative, traumatic crimes that can be perpetrated against someone you know, is really deep and it takes a long time often for someone to come forward or to remember the details or be able to report. Um, and in the meantime, the other thing we know about people who rape is they are repeat offenders, right? So when we were doing campus sexual assault work, you know, we sort of know that 90% of the campus sexual assaults are being committed by five to 6% of the people. Right, because actually the hunting ground were you involved in the hunting ground movie? No, but I, but I know that okay, because that was definitely the most if if you haven't seen it, Amy, the hunting ground, the documentary about about college campus sexual assault was so powerful. And one of the most powerful things was finding out not just that colleges are covering it up, but also that the same people are raping again and again. And because colleges cover it up, they're just repeat offenders and the colleges are actually the reason they're repeat offenders. It's 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 unbelievable. Right. And our whole overall justice system works that way. And that this short statutes of limitations contributes to that. So, you know, we got together and passed, you know, this extension of the statute of limitations is about actually, um, Sam, I think the anniversary of that, you know, of, of a year ago of the bill signing that we did with Governor Cuomo um, and Mira Sorvino and Michelle Hurd, you know, and others, Kathy Najimi there with Governor Cuomo to sign that bill is just about coming up on its year anniversary. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, that's what happens when collective action takes place, as you can really Well, start. what was the change? It was from what to what? You know, it was so you're now you're testing my memory <laughs> because it was, two, it was two different classes. It was the most serious and the secondary class. And one went from like eight to 15 years, another one from five oh. to 10 years, something like that. And that's it, a big yeah. change. Right. It was a big change. It's a big so change. I had a question about New York. So why hasn't Times uh, hit Wall Street mm. or really law firms? So remember, really, the way Time's Up happened um, and was kind of an organic coming together of women in the industry, right? So it was women in entertainment who came together, pushed for changes within the entertainment industry and beyond outside the entertainment industry. Pretty shortly thereafter, you know, in the early months of 2018, um, women in advertising did the same, you know, led by Colleen DeCourcy at Wine Kennedy. And they came together in a big way. And so as a result, we have a Time's Up advertising uh, department, so to speak, within Time's Up that has organized, you know, a whole a network of women in advertising to work on these issues. And then also about the same time, women in healthcare came together. And interestingly, it was a group led by a group of really outspoken, wonderful ER docs, you know, Esther Chu and Dara Cass, who are very famous now, if you've been watching the news, because you know, long before they were the PPE experts, you know, they actually came together and formed Times Up Healthcare. And so, you know, we have like a whole set of activities really driven by women in the industry. And 
Interestingly, although, you know, there have been lots of individual cases in law firms, like there's the Jones Day lawsuit, there's some other cases in the finance space, there hasn't been that critical mass, I guess, of collective women coming together. We've been talking to folks in the finance space and in the legal space about what we can do. Interestingly, just before the pandemic hit, we were going to sort of see if rather than trying to organize banks and then law firms and then accounting firms, maybe the idea would be to get the whole finance ecosystem, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, professionals together because then there's a little more strength in numbers. Um, And we were starting to sort of see what could we do with people like Sally Krawcheck and others on strategizing and what we could do. And then the pandemic hit. But it really was, Amy, sort of driven by internally, you know, women in the industries coming together. And you and I both come from that world. I mean, I think it's as hard as it is in entertainment or advertising or healthcare. I feel like in the finance world, you know, Wall Street, it's even harder. You're more isolated as women. You are so beholden to your reputation. I mean, entertainment is too, but for whatever reason, you know, there, you know, there, there are fewer women at the top who are willing to stick their necks out and actually talk about their experiences. So we haven't seen it. All the other structural barriers that keep women isolated in those industries, I think, have made it really difficult for them to come together. Did you ever feel like there was a momentum in the beginning that would just continue and maybe it's it stopped and started a bit? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like the momentum is still there? You know, I do think the momentum is still there. It's something you worry about, right? I mean, obviously, as an activist, as a movement person, now somebody who's running an organization full time on these issues, you worry about that. Um, But I do think, sadly, there is no shortage of new examples. You know, so um, I think by the time this airs, we will have launched, you know, a digital campaign against the Washington football team. So for those of you not in D.C., if you've been, you know, not following it, the Washington Post has been publishing over the last couple of weeks a series of articles with over 50 women and men, you know, some of them cheerleaders, but not just cheerleaders, also people who worked in the front office of the Washington football team who have documented years of sexual harassment and abuse and being, you know, basically, you know, asking the cheerleaders to come and sit on people's laps in the suite, you know, in the owner's suite kinds of behavior. You know, actually the more most recent um, documented allegation is the fact that they did a calendar shoot and outtakes from the calendar shoot that were particularly revealing of women's body parts were asked to be clipped together for a highlight reel for the owner and his board. So so we're, you know, we're calling on, you know, these are women who are under NDAs, under non-disclosure agreements. So we are calling on the Washington football team to release them from their NDAs, for the NFL to conduct its own investigation, and for the other NFL owners to really look and see, is this the kind of owner we want in our league? And that is a clause that they can invoke. Right. I mean, the National Football League has the ability in their league agreements to kick out owners, right, who don't represent the values of the NFL. Well, you know, we're sort of asking the NFL, are these your values? And maybe it's time to take action, you know, at the league level. If someone is listening right now and wants to report something and maybe they did sign an NDA, maybe they didn't, what would be the process of reporting it to Time's Up or getting in touch with Time's Up? Right. 
So you can go to the National Women's Law Center website. So it's nwlc.org. You can also, I'm sure, Google Time's Up Legal Defense on. You can also get to it through our Time's Up Now website, which is timesupnow.org. Or um, you can text, you know, um, join to 30644, which will get you, you know, into our system at, at Time's Up. Um, then you'll be asked, you know, just questions, you'll, you'll, you know, sort of some basic questions about what your case is and about, and you'll get linked to someone at the National Women's Law Center to talk to you about what it is. And then what happens is you get referred, you will be given the name of three lawyers, you know, um, hope preferably in your geographic area. And you can talk with each of those three and then you make a decision about which one of those three you want to work with. This is to comply with all the legal referral laws, which Amy, you'll you'll know there's like lots of very arcane state yes. laws around legal referrals. But you know, here the client will make his or her own decision about who to go with. And then mo most of the lawyers in that network have agreed to handle cases or certainly provided that the initial consultation is free. Um, and they have also, you know, um, agreed to sort of handle a lot of these cases free or for low bono, you know, low, low cost. And then there is a separate process for folks who need funds, right? So some of the lawyers are, you know, some of the best employment lawyers are their own solo practitioners, right? Or small mm -hmm. shops um, and don't have the money to, you know, fund cost, you know, cases in front of, you know, provide money up front. And so there's a separate application process, which lawyers can go through to get money um, for funds for specific, you know, things that they need money for in those cases. Um, and then finally, for um, survivors who want to speak out, you know, so a lot of people, as we mentioned, statute of limitations may have passed, but somebody actually wants to speak out. In the Washington case, a lot of those incidences are way past statute of limitations. Um, and that's actually how perpetrators get away with this. Um, and it's still important to hold them accountable and let survivors have their moment to speak and tell their story if that's what they want to do. I want to stress that, that we very much have as a touchstone, this is all about what survivors make the decision to do. If, if you want to speak or you don't want to speak. If you want to speak, we will make sure that a survivor first has a lawyer so that they're advised on defamation you know, um, risk or any other issues. And then if they want to speak, we can also link them with pro bono uh, PR support. Um, because a lot of times, you know, survivors, they get outed in an article or they speak out and all of a sudden they are deluged, right, by press, by social media attacks, other things. And we felt it was important for survivors to have PR support as well. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. 
You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentley's all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you've been a change maker your entire career, whether as an attorney working for the state of Illinois or at the White House. So if we can go back to 2009, you left, the, you left Skadden yep. and you arrive in D.C. at the White House. What was that like for you? I have no good how did you meet the president story, like, like <laughs> remember how we first met, uh, but I always supported him in his campaigns and in his Senate campaign. and of course, in his presidential campaign. And so when he got into the White House, he asked me to come and I worked, my first job was um, working with Valerie Jarrett. She was the senior advisor for public engagement and intergovernmental affairs. And I ran what became the Office of Public Engagement in those first two years, which was essentially the president's outreach office. You know, the phenomenon where if there was an office, then nobody else in the government took would take responsibility for women and girls, right? If you create a council, which we did of every cabinet agency, every major White House policy office, they were all members of it. The president charged every one of them with thinking about women and girls. 
that if sexual assault in the military comes up, it's the Pentagon's responsibility. We'll oversee it from the White House and hold their feet to the fire, but they got to solve the problem. They can't just like look down the table and say, oh, it's like not my problem, it's your problem because you're the office of women and girls. So, you know, I think it was untried, you know, it had not been done before. I think some of the, I'll be honest, some of the women's groups were a little skeptical in the beginning. They were a little hostile. I remember one meeting where Valerie just looked at them and said, just give us a chance. You know, just give us, give us a chance to see if this will work. And I think it was pretty successful. Um, and I think by the end of the eight years, you know, most of the groups would agree that they had more access to the president than they had ever had before because Valerie and I were both there at every key meeting. Um, that we were able to get more done because we were actually had people working on these issues in every part of the federal government. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, it, that's what we were, you know, we we're able to do issues on sexual assault, on military, on fat working family issues, you know, on global issues affecting women and girls, you know, internationally. Um, so it was, it, it was, it was really sort of a great, effort all culminating, as you know, Amy, in United States of Women, which was mm -hmm. our final event in June of 2016 that brought all these issues together and which Valerie and I and Jordan Brooks have continued, right, as an organization post-2016 that really brings together all the threads of the women's movement. Because my experience at the Council of Women and Girls was to live firsthand how fragmented the women's movement is, right? Everybody's working in silos. The healthcare people don't talk to the violence against women people, don't talk to the gender equity people in the workplace. And yet, I will say women don't live their lives in silos, right? So, you know, the same woman is, you know, trying to figure out how to get her you know, kids into school while she's dealing with the fact she's got to get a mammogram and she's dealing with a sick parent and she doesn't have equal pay in her job. And the idea that she's got to go to five different places, right, to find out information or get advocacy on those seemed crazy. So United other States than equal pay, you just basically describe my life. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. So but that's why, as you know, and Amy, you've been a big supporter of the United States of Women. You know, that is really an umbrella organization to bring everybody together. We want to honor the work that people are doing. You know, we don't displace that work, but we want to make sure everyone is both connected to each other and then connected to the grassroots activists across the country who are doing this great work. You ended up working very closely with Michelle Obama. Has her her star seems to have risen and risen and risen since the White House? Has that surprised you in any way, or is that something you predicted? I did always know, and I could see it in the work um, that we were doing. You know, as her chief of staff, that you know this is a brilliant woman who's incredibly thoughtful and has been able to match a really highly um, highly informed intellect and deep thinking about issues to never losing sight of her roots and average people. I mean, she used to be within the White House, you know, be the person who would have comments about, oh, you know, this is what the average person is really thinking, <laughs> you know, and, you know, she would be, you know, we were successful, I think, in some of our uh, East Wing work on promoting things like Let's Move, you know, and um, our other issues because she wasn't watching the Sunday news shows. She was watching what the rest of America is watching, like HGTV, right? <laughs> or the <Ellen. laughs> So even the White House, she was the person really still in touch, right, with what, you know, an average mom was struggling with or thinking about. And um, so I think what you are seeing post-White House is 
um, all of that that you saw in the White House, but unleashed, shall we say, right? And she's no longer constrained by, you know, the what she had to do to be first lady of the United States or what she had to do to be the wife of the president of the United States. I mean, she was also very clear during our time in the White House that there was only one person who was elected in the building and that everything all of us did had to be in service of his agenda, you know, um, which is right. I mean, that's actually not a being a subservient wife thing. That's being a good citizen <laughs> and a good student of democracy, which is mm. the one person in the building who's elected as the president. That's the agenda that the people have elected to serve. And so all of us, herself and her team, including me included, should be thinking about that. Um, and so all of the work we did, if you think about our initiatives, were all directly linked and in service of, you know, the president's health care agenda in the case of Let's Move, Reach Higher was the president's education agenda, um, Joining Forces was our work with the military, and then Let Girls Learn was obviously this international agenda that we adopted across the board on international girls' education. But post-White House, she's been able to have her own agenda, right, and really regain her own voice in her own way. And um, I had an experience I'll just I'll share with you guys. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but her first stadium tour, first of all, like the idea that she would fill a stadium, none of us actually thought that was going to happen, right? Like, you know, that, that was an idea. It was like, okay, maybe, but really, what are you going to do for like, you know, two hours with 16,000 people? Um, turns out like it really works. But I sat in the first one, you know, in Chicago and there was like every, you know, few minutes or so she'd say something where there were it's like muscle memory there'd be this involuntary reaction I would have because it was a little edgy right and it'd be the kind of thing <laughs> I had spent you know six years being really schooled at tamping down or redirecting or no we can't quite go that far and I had to catch myself and realize oh, who cares right you know she gets to say whatever she wants to now there is no election at stake. There is, you know, no agenda we're trying to promote other than what she wants to talk about. And I think that authenticity, uh, you know, both her her brilliance and how she makes observations and her willingness to be vulnerable. So all of the things, for example, her recent conversation about being mildly depressed in this this um, environment that resonates with folks. And it is a conversation you don't often hear people of her stature saying in the public sphere it's amazing too because she is the world's most admired woman and i think that she's so courageous in her authenticity and we're all lucky to get to hear it now all right yeah so sam and i end every podcast with a lightning round of different <laughs> questions okay. and then our sound engineer lou will jump in with his last question but i'll start what is your morning routine well, my morning routine under COVID has changed. So I will say that I have actually been pretty good about getting up and working out, which was never the case. My entire life, I have never done that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's clear not to sort of like, you know. I am with you, Tina. I just people. started post-COVID working out. I'm with exactly. you. So, you know, that's the one thing I'm is that I, and it, because, because I like, don't have to spend an hour commuting, right? And driving downtown that I've actually been using that to work out. So that's like a whole like new thing, very new. I love it. Sam? When was the last time you put your foot in your mouth? Yeah, like probably an hour ago. I mean, <laughs> right? so, 
<laughs> you know, I'm not sure I can remember the precise because I actually, one of my survival keys is that um, I don't hang on to stuff that's bad and I don't remember it. Therefore, it's like gone you know, from my memory. Um, uh, I have I, that same thing. And my family gets so frustrated. My kids will be like, remember the time? I'm like, I really don't. I try to only remember the good moments. <laughs> well, I used to hang on to it too long, right? So I think as women, I think one of one of our failings is sometimes we hang on to that stuff too long and we beat ourselves up about it over and over. So this is actually a learned tactic is to sort of let it go. So um, I am sure it was fairly recent, but I couldn't tell you exactly what. <laughs> what book are you reading? Oh, well, that's kind of interesting. You'll not, you will now hear the range of my reading interests. Um, I just finished Sarah Paresky's latest book. So if you don't know Sarah Paresky, she is a fabulous Chicago author who writes this amazing detective novel. She has this wonderful um, woman detective, V.I. Warshawski, and it's all set in Chicago. So I just finished that, and that actually is typically what I try to do. But like the next book I'm picking up is Cast. Right, because I do. Oh yeah, do, I've heard great things. things. things cast. So I'm going from detective novel to cast, and so you know, doing some more, more more thoughtful work. Now my kids are a little older than Amy, so my final question of our lightning round is: How often do you talk to your adult kids? Oh well, my youngest adult kid, who's 23, lives with me, so multiple times a day. <laughs> so <laughs> That's so nice. She's now she's now a school teacher. Uh, my older child um, is now a marine officer stationed in Okinawa. So we talk to him about once a week. We do a FaceTime thing usually on the weekends um, with him about once a week. Wow. All right. Well, Tina, we have loved our conversation. Lou has been listening this entire time, and he always comes up with a doozy of a final question. <laughs> Okay, okay, I want to thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Um, me personally, I've dated about maybe 13 girls, and I can only think of two that haven't actually um, been a victim of some type of sexual assault or, or some type. And it's it it is, and and another thing that I'm that I noticed from just asking them questions is, it's like a, a repeat thing. It happened when they were younger, and then it'll happen again when they're older. So, uh, is there any work that's happening um, that you may know about? Um, where, where they're like trying to like get at the root of the problem, like before it can ever happen again or even prevent it from happening to children, like maybe some education for parents or for schools or do you know of anything that's happening that's like that? Well, there's been a lot, you know, of efforts, you know, to try to develop a curriculum, you know, around, you know, early and earlier stages. And it's, you know, we started doing it around campus sexual assault and, and developing curricula. But we, you know, we were one of the things that happened when we just ran out of runway in the Obama administration was then starting to develop that same work for K through 12. Right. And sort of reaching down. Um, so there is a lot of work on um, I think that's been working um, the one organization that I love that is the National Coalition of Local Rape Crisis Centers, which is the national um, uh, network to um, end sexual assault, N-N-A-E-S-V, um, uh, which is terrific. And it is really connected to all of the local rape crisis centers. But I will also say an important event that is coming up, which is not a Time's Up event, we are partners for it. But um, later on this month, um, Toronto Burks, Me Too, organization and um, in partnership with the National Women's Law Center in partnership with us at Time's Up, we'll be holding a survivors summit, really intended to provide a platform and resources and support for survivors 
both to speak out and share their stories, uh, but also if they don't want to speak out, to find strength from one another and uh, and to really be a safe place that is exclusively designed by and for survivors. So, you know, the Survivors Agenda and the Survivors Summit, um, I think if you go to the National Women's Law Center website, nwlc.org, that I gave out earlier, um, or um, uh, find the Me Too movement, you know, Toronto Burke's Me Too, they are the sponsors of the Survivors Summit that's coming up. Tina has such a low-key way of talking about the fact that she was Michelle Obama's chief of staff. She's at the forefront of the Me Too movement. And it sometimes sounds like she's just talking about another day at the office. There's so much to glean from that. I know it was really interesting too because it, you know, it goes beyond just those points in her career too. Like she grew up as a sole Chinese American in her community in Ohio, and so she really had to learn how to navigate this different terrain that was, you know, she was the only one there most of the time. And I think that probably has carried through with her career and her personal life. It's just really interesting to talk to her so thoughtfully about all those different transitions. If you are listening and you have been a victim, hopefully this conversation will inspire you to come forward with your story and to seek justice in whatever way that is for you. And if we can help you in any way, we're here for you. You can reach us at our website at www.whatsforstorypodcast.com. This podcast is powered by my company, Park Place Payments, which you can find at parkplacepayments.com, and Amy's company, The Riveter, which you can find at theriveter.co. And a huge thank you to our producers at Large Media. We love working with a women-owned company who's doing all of this magic behind the scenes. And also a thank you to Emma Hard and our male cast member, Lou Burns. Thanks for listening. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.